us, if you get to stay with us. Good morning, church. You know, God just is so awesomely good. If we just pay attention, it's amazing what he does to comfort us and to be with us and to just hold us up. Before the first worship service, the song that we sang was How Great Thou Art, and it was my husband's favorite song. I had no idea that was coming, and I get to this service and we just sang the last song from his memorial service. So God just wants us to know how he just loves us so much and wraps his arms around us all the time. Today we come to the last of the Ten Commandments. Pastor Chris has been inviting us over the past several weeks to embrace the commandments, also known as the law, not as something that binds us, but as loving instructions that free us to live life to the fullest. I think that most of us have learned that these 10 words hold much more meaning than we once believed. What on the surface seems so easy to understand goes much deeper and we realize how far we fall short of keeping them. In his book, The Tender Commandments, Reflections on the Father's Love, Ron Mill reminds us that these rules, chipped in stone, are intended as guiding steps that can keep us from being bruised and broken by the deadly traps of a fallen world. Today we visit the commandment God saved for last, and it can be the most deadly. And don't fear that you've missed one because next week Pastor Chris will preach on the ninth commandment, which we left behind So uh, will you join me now in what are the Ten Commandments? Let's repeat those. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. What is the 10th commandment? You shall not covet. What does this commandment mean? Jesus said, watch out on your guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We love God by seeking a pure heart that thinks and wills the best for God and for our neighbors and even our enemies. We will be content with whatever our circumstances through the strength of Christ within us. The first part of the law is this great commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. The second part of the law flows out of our understanding of the first, 
We must love our neighbor as ourselves. Will you pray with me, please? Father God, I pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that we might have ears to hear what you would say. You've told us in your word that this is the love of God, that we keep your commandments. As we keep your commandments, we experience your love to an even greater degree, living life as it was meant to be. We desire to do what is pleasing to you, Father. Help us to understand that your way is the best, that you might energize us by your spirit to do the things that are right in your sight. I pray that through your spirit, each one of us might find personal application to the situations of our lives today so that we would not be a covetous people, but rather be grateful and thankful for everything that you see fit to bless us with. Amen. The Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Living Bible puts it this way. You must not be envious of your neighbor's house or want to sleep with his wife or want to own his slaves, oxen, donkeys, or anything else he has. Covetousness, it's not a word we often use outside the church, so what exactly is it? According to my Bible dictionary, covetousness is a strong desire after the possession of worldly things. The Hebrew word for covet means to desire and also entails lust which is helpful and honest because that is how our enviousness usually feels, as a lustful desire for something that is another's. In Greek, the word means the wish to have more, an inordinate desire for what one has not. The word also translates as greed, which we're probably most familiar with. Its basis lies in discontentment with what one has. It has an element of lawlessness and is sinful because it is contrary to the command, be content with what you have, because it leads to trust in the uncertainty of riches, to the love of the world, to forgetfulness of God, and is idolatry setting up wealth instead of God. It ranks with the worst sins. Our Lord especially warns against it, as does Paul. In fact, this commandment might have been especially difficult for St. Paul, since he mentions it by name in Romans 7, 7, when he says, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. The Tenth Commandment, also known as the sin of discontentment, is about controlling our desires and finding contentment as God would have us live. Covetous people will break all of God's commandments in order to satisfy their desires because at the heart of sin is the sin in the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, 
sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. I guess that about sums it up. All sin originates in the heart. Both the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me, and the tenth commandment, deal with what's in the heart, while the other eight focus on outward actions that begin in the heart. This commandment differs from the other nine in that it's an inward attitude, not an outward action. Of all the commandments, this one is probably taken least seriously because the penalty is not obvious. If a person murders, he might get the death penalty. If he steals, he might be sent to prison. If he lies, he might be sued. There are civil penalties for breaking the other commandments. This one is different. Thou shall not covet. Covetousness is an insidious sin that most people never recognize in their own lives. But God's law reveals it. Jesus told the story of the rich young ruler. It is a good example of the use of the law to reveal sin and to show a man his need for a savior. The young man was very moral outwardly, but he never faced the sins within. Jesus did not tell him about the law because the law would save him. He told him about the law because the young man did not realize his own sinfulness. True, he had never committed adultery, robbed anyone, given false witness, or dishonored his parents. But what about covetousness? When Jesus told him to sell all his goods and give to the poor, the man went away in great sorrow. The commandment, thou shall not covet, had revealed to him what a sinner he really was. Instead of admitting his sin, he rejected Christ and went away unconverted. Now, while money is an economic necessity, there is a difference between having enough money to provide for our needs and seeking an abundance of money to satisfy our wants. As we begin our adult lives, we purchase things that are necessities. Over time, most of us are able to acquire a few things that are luxuries. Somewhere along the way, our stuff begins to pile up as we gather more and more and more. What began innocently enough is often the beginning of a covetous lifestyle. Sometimes this accumulating becomes a sickness and people's things begin to possess them. That's when life goes out of control. Have you seen some of the reality shows on TV about hoarders? Well, these are extreme examples, but I know these people didn't start out with the expectation to live surrounded by thousands of pounds of trash. But how about the rest of us? How are we seduced into breaking the Tenth Commandment? Coveting really boils down to wanting more and more not of what you need, but of what you want. Society does not help us one bit to obey this commandment. In our culture, coveting is not a prohibition. It's a celebration. Our economy is based on stimulating a coveting kind of mentality, desiring, 
acquiring stuff, is what it's all about. It's based on wanting us to feed our greed. We are bombarded with advertising that seeks to stimulate our appetite for more and more. More things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people who could care less about us. With new innovations in media, we are inundated with temptation. Television commercials, advertisements in the mail by emails and phone calls. We don't ask for them and wish we could make them stop. All of them enticing us to buy, to spend, to acquire. I was raised by parents who lived through the Great Depression. I grew up hearing stories of scarcity, of what they went without. But for the most point, part, they were satisfied. Everyone shared with each other. They spent time together. I remember stories of hand-me-down dresses or clothing that was recut and resewn. They were the original recyclers. Entertainment might have consisted of playing board games or outdoor activities. My parents were able to give me more than they had, and I grew up having much, wanting to give my children even more. Sociologists tell us that the 80s was the me generation, and each successive generation has felt entitled to more and more. A few days after I learned I would be giving this message, I was sitting in a doctor's office, and across from me was a girl about 14 years old. Her t-shirt announced, I can have anything I like. I wonder what our kids will tell their grandkids about what they went without. When you look at people who are greedy, they are generally not happy with the things they have. Only with what they have that their neighbor doesn't have. It's generally about competition. Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife, etc. This greed thing, this coveting thing is bound up in competition. We want to outdo our neighbors. In our current financial climate, some of us regret our financial losses more than we do our sins. It takes little life experience to see that few of us are happy with what we have. So what's really behind this love of things? What is it that drives us to hunger for more? At the heart of covetousness is the sin of insecurity. I'm not speaking merely of a term used in therapeutic counseling sessions. This insecurity goes to the heart of who we are, our identity. Insecurity leads to greed and unbridled want. It's what motivates us to take what is not ours. It distorts our fears and leads us to strike out against others. It results in our failure to affirm ourselves and to act with courage. To covet is to have lost our inner peace, our baseline satisfaction about who we are and what we have. Who is rich, the rabbis ask, one who is happy with his lot. In his book, The Ten Commandments, David Hazany writes, covetousness is the deflation and failure of the self. Instead of feeling happy with our lot, we grab for more in the hope that this will restore our status in our own eyes. 
how true it is. We seek to restore our status in our own eyes. Instead of claiming who we are in Christ Jesus, we allow the world to judge us on our perceived success based on our worldly goods. Relying on our own wisdom, strength, and cleverness, we strive to make people notice us by what we can achieve, scholastically, professionally, and materially. We seek to be noticed for what we have done, never once realizing it is God's gifts and spirit that have empowered everything we do and everything we are. Those who live to be rich, who love money, pierce themselves with sorrows. They are depressed. It's discouraging and depressing because whatever they have, it's not quite enough. These people are not the underprivileged, they are the overprivileged. Those who want to be rich pursue all kinds of things that will break their hearts down the road. How many parents are so busy climbing the corporate ladder or pursuing social acceptance that they don't have time to spend with their children? How many marriages fail because they are unattended? In our pursuit for worldly goods, we fail to nurture the relationships the Lord has given us, especially the one with Jesus Christ, our Savior. John Corson had a great illustration in one of his sermons. In 1980, a new arcade game called Pac-Man was released for distribution in the United States. It quickly became a social phenomenon. You could find it everywhere. I remember finding it in the lobby of one of my favorite restaurants. People would gather around the console, holding onto the joysticks, seeing how many dots they could gob gobble up with their Pac-Man while they were waiting for a seat. But the problem was they got so into the game and so addicted that even when their seat was ready, they didn't want to leave. Pac-Man, a perfect metaphor for our generation. Gobbling up more and more and more stuff, we spend our time and money gobbling up everything in sight and in the end, wind up beaten and eaten. When we feed our greed, we just want more. We become jealous of what others have. We want to deny it, but our Father knows it to be true. He knows about us. We are his children. He gives us this commandment not to be restrictive, not to put a burden on us, but because he wants us to be free. Don't be greedy. Don't covet what someone else has. Don't be eaten up by the desire to have more of what you already have enough of. That's why God is saying, be careful about this thing called greed. Because in the end, it's going to get you. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So watch out for a covetous heart. I don't think God wastes any of our life experiences, but rather expects us to share insights we have learned with, uh, with each other, both for our own healing, but also to help others who be, may be experiencing the same difficulties. Now, people who know me will tell you I'm generous, but let me tell you the story of an experience I had with coveting. I never considered the enjoyment of beautiful things as greed.
Greed can be so subtle that it sneaks up on you when you least expect it. My husband and I love to travel and visit art galleries. While on vacation, we would often purchase a piece of art that had some special meaning, either to remember the place we visited or to mark something that was going on in our lives at the time. After his death, our family took a cruise to Alaska to scatter his ashes in a waterfall in the rainforest. One of the onboard activities was to attend art auctions. Some of you may have done the same thing. It seemed like fun. Well, on that trip, I purchased several pieces of art thinking I was making a good investment in the future. I purchased enough, in fact, so that the gallery invited me back to subsequent auctions, both on land and on sea. Having been in business for over 30 years, and being the largest art gallery in America seemed to be trustworthy credentials, so I continued to purchase art through them for the next several years. My mother warned me, as mothers often will, your house looks like a museum, haven't you got enough? Unfortunately, her advice fell on deaf ears. Two years ago, to my horror, I became aware that the gallery was under investigation for fraud. Much of the original art I had invested in had had forged signatures added, making it worthless. Once I got over the shock of this discovery, much like the prodigal came to himself in the pigsty, I revealed my, I reevaluated my behavior. Lord, what had I done? What had I become? In my compulsion to store up treasures here on earth, I had fallen down the slippery slope of covetousness. I realized I had done just what God said not to do. I was trying to build my security in things, not in God's promises. Things had taken over my life. I'm embarrassed to tell you that at one time I was afraid to leave my house for fear someone would break in and rob me. I had a security system installed. I insured my purchases, but the joke was on me. No one needed to break in. I'd been swindled before the possessions were even in the front door. I'm grateful that God in his goodness opened my eyes and soon I was able to laugh at the situation I was in. Man had pulled a fast one on me, but God had used it for good. It didn't take long before I gained a new perspective on material things. I began to experience the freedom that comes from letting go of stuff. In time, things didn't have the same attraction for me. I didn't have to hit every sale in town. And I had the freedom to leave a store without making a purchase. Freedom. Freedom from stuff. Now the art still hangs on my walls, and I love looking at it, worthless or not. Ironically, most of it is religious art. It reminds me of who I worship and who is in control. My favorite Bible verse is Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I claim this verse and trust that God will continue to transform me by making me aware of changes I need to make to live according to his plan for my life. Grace covers my foolish attempts to make the world into something I can control. So whatever you struggle with, this or something else, 
be certain you are not alone. In his commentary on the 10th word, Russell Reno, a professor of theological ethics writes, perhaps pride and not the love of money is at the root of all evil. Pride and insecurity, root causes of covetousness. I have come to realize that covetousness is a spiritual disease that requires spiritual cures. In God's word, we find the remedies for covetousness. First, contentment. First Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says in Philippians 4, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. The contented man is not the one who has the most, it's the one who needs the least. Many years ago, I learned a motto from my brother-in-law, George, also known as Brother Beckett. George is a Franciscan brother. His motto is, blessed be nothing. It's too bad it's taken me so many years to realize the freedom in that motto. A lesson from Proverbs says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. A second cure for covetousness is to give richly to charity. Giving away money is a crucial step in breaking off our adulterous romance with wealth. Riches, blessings, material things ought to be enjoyed and employed. If God blesses you in your business, with an inheritance or with some other windfall you didn't expect, that's to be enjoyed. But it must also be employed. It's enjoyed and employed. You put it to work not to make more money for yourself, but to find ways to help other people. Hold things loosely. Share things with others. Distribute your goods. Do you have to give it all away? No. If we ask the Lord what he wants us to do with the blessing he sent our way, he will show us how to lay up treasures that will be eternal. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. 
And finally, remember that life is temporary. We are told that in our dying moments, we will not regret that we did not spend more time at the office. Knowing that death is a certainty, we can see that it's absurd to put our trust and hope in wealth and worldly achievements. Realizing the temporary nature of material wealth allows us to develop a proper love for God. When wanting, desiring, and coveting become the way of our lives, we break the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. Until we stop aspiring, achieving, and acquiring as our primary focus in life, our hearts cannot rest in God. It is, after all, a matter of the heart. Amen?